We don't need to explain why this is a great poem, do we? Let's do it anyway. Why is this a great poem? It's wonderful. I don't think there's anything else I can say about that one. My ideal poetry class is a class where we just like sit in a circle and read poems and then snap our fingers or something or <laughs> nod our heads and then keep reading. I mean, the word choice is just so great. Like the slap and plop where obscene threats poise like mud grenades. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Berenisa and Blair about the poetry of Seamus Heaney. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you make your poetry more grounded. To begin our little poetry unit, I'd like to read a quote by the great Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca, who once wrote, The poet is a professor of the five bodily senses. We don't have very much time to spend on poetry in this class, just like the other genres. This is just kind of a taste test, a quick little sampling. And so if I have to choose what to emphasize about the pleasures of poetry and how to kind of instantly improve your own poetry, it would definitely be this, the five bodily senses. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be smart. Poetry isn't about emotions. Poetry isn't about ideas. It's about the senses. Whenever you find yourself in your own writing straying from sensory details, try to come back to something tactile and concrete. And when you're reading poetry, don't get bogged down by the need to interpret or analyze or quote-unquote understand. Great poems, all great poems, no matter how difficult they might look on the surface, simply want to dazzle you by appealing to your five senses. So keep that in mind as you keep reading Heaney and as we move on later into the poems of Emily Dickinson. And for more on poetry's appeal to our senses and much else, let's go into that conversation between me and Blair and Berenisa. Hello. Hi. Can people hear me? Yep. Oh, very good. How are you both doing? Great. I am going to tell you now, just a second here while I find it. Okay, so this isn't a an agenda. Like I don't, I'm not demanding that we talk about these kinds of things, but I definitely do want to talk about what poems were your two favorites, you know, and, and why you like them so much. I thought we could just talk about how good he is at phrases. He's like, he's like a wonderful poet of the phrase, you know? Even in poems I don't really love that much, you can always find three or four words he puts together in such wonderful ways. Talk about phrases. We'll talk about sounds and poetry and the, the wonderful way he has of combining the content of the poem or the meaning of the poem and some sounds. I want to talk about ways to enjoy poetry. Like poetry is it's the most misunderstood genre, I think. People know what stories are in novels. Even essays, people read all, all, all different types of nonfiction quite regularly. Poetry isn't really read widely. I think it comes with a lot of stereotypes and, and misconceptions. So I th I, I'm hoping that we can weave into our conversation some ways in which to approach poetry that I think are more likely to increase your chances of loving poetry. I think poetry is much, much more like music than we think. And babies are born with the ability to love music 
They're babies, you know, I've seen, I've seen it with my own eyes, babies being thrilled by a piece of music. And little kids don't need musical training to love songs. I think the same thing is true of poetry. I think that when, when we grow up, we only think that we need extra special training to enjoy poetry. But I think that's wrong. There's nothing about poetry that makes it less accessible than a piece of music. So I'd like to talk, you know, as we go, maybe about a couple of ways to get out of our own ways as we read poems. But yeah, to start, I'd love to hear from each of you. If you had to pick one or two, I mean, yeah, poems that you especially loved, which poems would they be and why did you especially love them? Larry, do you want to go first? <laughs> I'll go. I should just point. I should, random, yeah. I'll go first. Okay. So I kind of picked the ones that are, I relate to so much. Like I loved the digging poem and I loved how, you know, he comes from a farming family. And I relate to that because my dad's such a hardworking person. He's 76 right now and he still does this. He still does it. So, you know, it was like, it was digging, death of a naturalist, blackberry picking, follower, midterm break, the diviner and twice shy. Just because there's so many things I relate to in like my life cycle and stuff. But um, if you go forward, I also liked um, I Hazel Stick for Catherine Ann, A Kite for Michael and Christopher, and The Wishing Tree. But Uh would you say that digging is like, I know this is kind of stupid and it's hard to pick one, you know, it's like picking a favorite child. But if you did have to pick, is digging your favorite out of all those that you listed? It's just because. It makes me think so much of my dad. Like he's a hardworking man, just like he describes here. But the thing is, my dad also writes poetry. Oh, no way. Yeah. Cool. And he only went to third grade in elementary. So this is a huge thing. And when I was watching the video you sent, he's talking about this one. And he says that like writing sometimes is looked down upon. Right. It's for like weak people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I really, people really who don't it. like to sweat. Yeah. 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 And um, so it, I thought it was really good just because it makes me think of my dad. You know what I mean? And how he writes as well. And he's still pretty strong. So this is also great. Maybe we should read it. Let's read it. And then we can talk about some favorite moments in it, some favorite lines, some favorite sounds. And then we'll hear from Blair about what she loves, um, what poem she loves. Bernie said, who should read it? You can read it. I don't want to hog the mic. You can read it. I'm not that good at reading poems. <laughs> don't say that. No, no, no. Don't undersell yourself like that. But I'll read it if you want. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So I'll read it. And then I just want you to point to uh, lines or sounds or phrases or moments that you found particularly great or beautiful or surprising. Yeah. Okay. Digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean, rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground. My father digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug. The shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in his hands. 
By God, the old man could handle a spade just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's Bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. Are there favorite images or moments or lines that just particularly wow? To me, the third verse was what I kind of highlighted and wrote on the side, just because that's how I get to see my dad work, you know? It's really, really hard work. And I, I put a note on the side saying my dad still does it and he's 76. You know, I understand that. You mean this this line till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low? It's a wonderful. I mean, it's kind of a silly image, I guess, in one way, but it's so characterizing. You know, we can instantly see that person in that position, mm-hmm. and yeah, especially if they're old, if they're a father figure or a parent parental figure, we think, oh, here they are, still doing it. You know, still doing it, still working. And the sounds rump, and then I love how rump kind of secretly rhymes with up. Mm-hmm. right underneath it in the in the in the next line and beds flower beds and bends as there's another kind of secret rhyme he's embedding all these wonderful sounds the line stooping in rhythm through potato drills like there is a rhythm when you're yeah. digging you know what i mean i don't know yeah, totally. it's really a lie for me <laughs> i don't know blair if this was one of your favorites or not do you have anything to say about this poem if it if it pleased you if not you know you can pass yeah, well, I did really love this poem. I don't myself come from a farming family, but um, I mean, not to be too stereotypical, but I am from Iowa. And even though I live in an urban area, I, you know, have my interactions with yeah, yeah. farming and farm life and those people. And so this was kind of like also a fond poem, you know, like I see that in my head and my grandpa was a farmer. And, um, but I love... I mean, this is just a small thing, but when he says, when you're talking about sounds, I was looking for it and I was like, I don't see any onomatopoeia, you know, he doesn't, but in the words themselves, when he says nicking and slicing neatly, you can yeah. hear the tools doing those things. The words are so cool that they, they make the sound of the tool. And then I also just really love the last two kind of paragraphs or stanzas how he kind of makes that comparison too, you know, like writing is for (laughs) weak people, but he says, I'll dig with my pen. This is my work. And I like that. This is great. I love what you say. Automatopoeia is, it's a very familiar kind of, I guess you could say poetic technique. What automatopoeia achieves, poetry in general can achieve all the time in much more interesting and subtle ways. And this example that you just gave is a great example of this slicing and nicking neatly. I also love this fourth stanza, maybe some of my favorite moments, the coarse boot nestled on the lug. The lug must be some part of a shovel. You know, I'm not up on my shovel anatomy as probably I should be, but I just think that boot and the coarse boot nestled on the lug, all those stresses and the C sound and the 
kind of uh g the the, the the low u vowel sounds and the g you know he rooted out tall tops buried the bright edge deep we have those b sounds repeated yeah I think it's so evocative of what we would hear in the scene if we were there. And also how wonderful is this image of him carrying his grandfather milk in a bottle? It's so beautiful. I don't know why. I mean, maybe this requires no comment. You know, it's like this little kid carrying an offering, you know, to this man that he reveres and he's kind of tipping it over and it's corked sloppily and maybe spilling, you know, it's just this very simple down-to-earth moment of profound, I don't know, respect and... I was just going to say, I think this also falls in pace with the other poem. I can't think of the line right now, but when he talks about following his father all over yeah. the farm. That was all I had. <laughs> yeah, no, it's called, I think it's called The Follower. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's just read a couple stanzas of it. This is on page eight of the book things to highlight here my father worked with a horse plow his shoulders globed like a full sail strung between the shafts and the furrow the horses strained at his clicking tongue an expert he would set the wing and fit the bright steel pointed sock the sod rolled over without breaking and the head rig with a single pluck of reins the sweating team turned round and back into the land notice that this poem rhymes plow furrow strung tongue wing-breaking sock pluck, but they're very gentle, very off rhymes. They don't get in your face. They don't sound like a nursery rhyme. This is one very important lesson. Like you can still rhyme in poetry today. And one way to make it seem, you know, not like a nursery rhyme or too sing-songy is to kind of use little slant off rhymes or in jam the lines. And jam, it just means that the sentence continues, but the line stops and you keep going down. Yeah. And the wonderful sounds, clicking tongue, and also sentence variation, an expert just as a sentence, you know, that's great. Uh, okay, so before we move on to other poems, to summarize, we've covered, I think, a couple things. All you need to do to be able to enjoy poems and what you should focus on when you write poems is imagery. Berenice celebrates the fact that, that uh, this poem shows her images that are, she's familiar with, right? This person working in the garden. Uh, so show people images and look for images when you read. And Blair, you're emphasizing the sounds and how they kind of mimic the images themselves. So when you're reading poetry, look for images and enjoy the sounds. And when you're writing poetry, flood your reader with images and flood your reader with sounds. Yeah. Blair, what would you say is your favorite poem so far in the book? Yeah. In my little list here, I kind of highlighted three. Two of them, I like them for very similar reasons. Uh -huh. So I'll just kind of focus on those, I guess. Um, but they are Twice Shy on page 11 and then Night Drive on page 18. Yeah, Night Drive is so and lovely. I think the reasons I like them are that they just evoke a mood of an everyday experience, you know? It's just a night drive. It's just a stroll. But he puts you there so immediately. And I think anytime I try my horrible hand at poetry... Most of the time, that's where they come from. They just come from little everyday experiences that I really appreciate in that moment. Which one should we read? Do you want to read Night Drive or Twice Shy? They're both very lovely. And they're both love poems, right? Let's do Twice Shy just because that was the first one that like really stuck out to me. I was like, okay, this is going to be a favorite. <laughs> do you want to read it or should I? 
Um, you can read it. <laughs> Twice shy. Her scarf, a la Bardot, in suede flats for the walk. She came with me one evening for air and friendly talk. We crossed the quiet river, took the embankment walk. Traffic holding its breath, sky a dense diaphragm. Dusk hung like a backcloth that shook where a swan swam, tremulous as a hawk, hanging deadly, calm. A vacuum of need collapsed each hunting heart, but tremulously we held as hawk and prey apart, preserved classic decorum, deployed our talk with art. Our juvenilia had taught us both to wait, not to publish feeling and regret it all too late. Mushroom loves already had puffed and burst in hate. So, cherry and excited as a thrush linked on a hawk, we thrilled to the March twilight with nervous, childish talk. Still waters running deep along the embankment walk. It's almost like a song, you know? It's almost literally a song. Yeah. The rhymes are quite loud and there's a refrain with this embankment walk. Blair, what, what particularly stood out to you here? I mean, immediately he gives you such a distinct image. He doesn't spend so long on it, but just her scarf a la Bardot and suede flats for the walk. You know, you, you already yeah. have a mood for what, you know, what kind of an interaction this is. And then the second, yeah, I'd have to say the second stanza is my favorite. Just, I mean, I don't want to take up time, but I almost just want to read it again. Just like traffic holding its breath, sky, a tense diaphragm. All of these just subtle images that you wouldn't think of. And then like dusk hung like a bat cloth that shook where a swan swam. Again, words that kind of evoke the sound and the image. And yeah, and then just like going on. And finally to the last stanza, just that whole feeling of nervousness that they're both having is just so endearing and they just are on their little walk yeah. and I love the repetition of along the embankment walk. It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful. You highlight several important things. He trusts that the image will evoke the mood that he wants. That's, I think, one of the most important things to remember when we're writing our own poetry. He trusts that the image will evoke the mood that he wants and he trusts that the image will conjure up particular people. So it's not just any generic she. It's not just a beloved or my love. No, she had a scarf like Bridget Bardot and she was wearing suede flats. Those, those are the first two lines. All you need to know about this woman is her scarf and her shoes, right? It wasn't just any scarf. It was this particular kind of scarf and it wasn't just any shoes. It was this, these particular kinds of shoes. It's so economical. It's so concise. He drops in those details and immediately, like you say, Blair, we have this very particular person in our heads, in our mind's eye, and an entire mood, and an entire mood. So as poets, this is a list, how to write poetry, yeah? Trust images, trust images. Images, you know, they, this old cliche, a picture is worth a thousand words. We are dealing with words here, but one sensory detail is worth a thousand abstractions. What do you think, Bernice? Anything to add about this? Yeah, it's like you were saying all the imagery. Um, in the third stanza for me, when he says a vacuum of need collapsed each hunting heart, but tremulously we held as hawk and prey apart. Yeah. I wrote on the side, 
this is so dangerous when you have this vacuum of need. <laughs> so many things can happen, but they, they held apart. You know, they had self-control. They really wanted each other. That's how I see it. I don't yeah. know if I'm interpreting it incorrectly. But, no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> and it's just, when I, I read this one, like Blair was saying, I just pictured this beautiful, beautiful woman. Yeah. You know, Bridget Bordeaux, she was so beautiful and so fashionable. And, you know, but you get I, it. And I love the fact that they're, he says they're more or less kids. So, I mean, like preteens, early teens, you know. So he has this glamorous image of her. She's just a girl. She's just a little kid, you know. But so is he, right? But he's like, you know, in his imagination, magnifying her glamour with these comparisons. I just find that so charming. Even with the title, they're already endearing to the mm. reader. Twice shy. They're mm. both being shy. They're both just, he sees her as so beautiful. They're both in this beautiful place with each other, you know, yeah. a vacuum of need. And so already you're just like, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about, I mean, I, I love what Berenice says about the danger here. Like love is dangerous. I mean, from lots of ways, it's dangerous. You know, you could get into trouble in all kinds of ways. And he acknowledges that in the poem, you know, emotionally, like, we weren't so young that we didn't know this is what he means. I think our juvenilia had taught us both to wait, not to publish feeling and regret it all too late. Mushrooms of love, sorry, mushroom loves already had puffed and burst in hate. So they've, they're old enough to have had a few bad experiences, you know? So they want to make sure that this one goes right. You know, love is scary. It can go wrong. This, this is maybe worth spending two more minutes on. It's a love poem. Uh, one of my favorite poets, Raina Maria Rilke, in a book, a wonderful book that all aspiring poets should read called Letters to a Young Poet. He's corresponding with this young poet. And he says to this young poet, don't write love poems because they're so, I'm now paraphrasing, don't write love poems as a direct quote, but the paraphrase is, there are so many love poems. It's so, it's such a familiar topic for poetry. It's so overwritten that there's no fresh way to say it. There's no way to surprise your readers anymore with this topic. It will only end up being cliche. It will only end up being sentimental. And yet love is a powerful emotion and we want to write love poems. How can we do it and avoid cliche? So I'll, I want your guys' answers, but just to kind of contextualize the question, how to write poetry is the title of our list. Number one, trust that the image, one good image is worth a thousand abstractions. Try to replicate in the sounds of the language, the sounds of the imagery, right? And three, you must at all costs avoid cliche. You just must. So how does this poem, it's a love poem. I mean, you can just like, there's a thousand cliches waiting in the bushes, ready to jump out and strangle you, you know? How do you avoid cliches? How does he do it? I don't know. To me, it sounds like complete honesty. I mean, with that stanza I, I read, I don't think I would have said reality, you know, if there was a need of a vacuum of need, because okay. it would have labeled me as something, I don't know, people can judge me out of that yeah, one. No, this is a good point. I think it takes guts to be a great poet. You have to be willing to say things that, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to expose yeah, you, to expose yourself as a flawed human and to say things that people will think, oh, gee, I can't believe you said that. That's one really, really important thing. Yeah, Any, I don't know. What else can we add? Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to reference the stanza again where he says, 
A juvenilia had taught us both to wait, not to publish feeling and regret it all too late. And then he goes on to use this little kind of, I don't want to say metaphor because it's not super direct and it's not cliche, <laughs> but mm-hmm. when he talks about the mushrooms, so they yeah. had puffed and burst in hate. <clears throat> yeah. And so it's just like, he puts this little lesson in there. Like when your heart gets broken, you're not so willing, you're not so eager and so even though he paints her in this Bardot scarf and suede flats, he's not like, oh, my darling, I want you, I want you, or whatever. Yeah, he's, no, that's right. He gives a genuine image and genuine mood that they're both experiencing. And it's never a mushroom love, you know, like there are, there's a version, there's a type of love that blooms like a mushroom, like some nasty, poisonous, noxious mushroom, you know. What a surprising metaphor. It's absolutely, totally surprising. And we need to like avoid that kind of love. It's not, there's no hearts, there's no doves. I mean, there is a swan, which I guess is a kind of risk, you know? Yeah, there's no, oh, my darling. Let's talk about a poem. Let's keep on love because one of my absolute favorite poems is The Skunk. It's a love poem. And this is a great, I think, poem to learn. This poem can teach us how to write topics that are overwritten and still avoid cliche. So what page is the skunk on? 72. 72, yeah, we must read this. So just to precede my reading here, I mean, he wants to write a love poem for his wife. And uh, just imagine, it goes beyond guts. It almost almost verges on the obnoxiously daring. I'm going to compare her to an animal. What animal? Light of my life, woman of my heart and soul. I know, a skunk, yeah? It's like, how dare he? The skunk. Up, black, striped, and damasked like the chasuble at a funeral mass. The skunk's tail paraded the skunk. Night after night, I expected her like a visitor. The refrigerator whinnied into silence. My desk light softened beyond the veranda. Small oranges loomed in the orange tree. I began to be tense as a voyeur. After 11 years, I was composing love letters again, broaching the word wife like a stored cask, as if its slender vowel had mutated into the night, earth, and air of California. The beautiful, useless tang of eucalyptus spelt your absence. The aftermath of a mouthful of wine was like inhaling you off a cold pillow. And there she was, the intent and glamorous, ordinary, mysterious skunk, mythologized, demythologized, snuffing the boards five feet beyond me. It all came back to me last night, stirred by the sootfall of your things at bedtime, your head down, tail up humped in the bottom drawer for the black plunge line nightdress. So great. So lovely, right? So beautiful. So charming. But he picks the least romantic animal of all, you know, the skunk, the nastiest, most pestilent creature imaginable. So one way to avoid a cliche, especially in love poetry, is just you must defy expectations. You must I often have my students, you know, if we were in class, I would like get I would force you all to get out a pen and a paper and I'm write topics like love or hate or courage and say, write without thinking as fast as you can, a list of what comes to mind. So if it was love, you'd be writing what comes to mind. Let's do this out loud. 
Let's get all the cliches out of our system. What comes to mind? Images, words, phrases. When I say love, one, two, three, go. This is your chance to be cliche. <laughs> Hearts, I don't know. Chocolate. Hearts, chocolates, flowers. Doves, moonlight, walks. Doves, moonlight, red, rain, you know, rain gets in there. <laughs> yeah, what else? Holding hands, rings, kissing. No, skunk is nowhere to be found. No one is saying skunk. <laughs> you know, do you see my point? So make sure that anything that you put in your love poem is not on your cliche list. And is so far away from the cliche list that no readers would ever be expecting it. Skunk. I'll write a love poem in which they say that my beloved reminded me of the skunk. I just think, again, emphasizing the imagery that we've already talked about once. But even, I mean, he ends it with for the black plunge line nightdress, and it all just kind of comes together. He's yeah. like, oh, I see it. And yeah. it's not a bad image. No. It's, it's endearing and lovely. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, like, you convinced me there is something glamorous about a skunk. It's kind of sleek, I guess. And the diction, too, beautiful, useless tang of eucalyptus. Right? Like we're there suddenly breathing in the, the air. This is what Cal I've never been to California, but because I've read this poem like a million times, I think I expect when I go there to get, when I step out of the car, that it will smell like eucalyptus. I don't know. I'm probably way wrong. No, my mom is from California. It does. Sad, sadly, now it probably smells like burning forests, but um, hopefully one day it'll smell like beautiful eucalyptus again. Yeah, very good. So, uh, yeah, avoid cliche. Trust images, talk about music, defy expectations. What else? How about um, break? Oh, sorry, Blair. Oh. No, no. Yeah, that's a good one. Berenice is nominating midterm break. This is such a sad poem. We, we're moving from celebratory love, probably the saddest poem in the book. So, so horrible. It was a wonderful, beautiful poem. Yeah. Who should read it? You should. <laughs> should I really, though? It's too much reading. Okay, fine. But you do all the talking then, okay? Deal? <clears throat> Midterm break. This is page nine. I sat all morning in the college sick bay, counting bells, knelling classes to a close. At two o'clock, our neighbors drove me home. In the porch, I met my father crying. He had always taken funerals in his stride and big Jim Evans sang it was a hard blow. The baby cooed and laughed and rocked the pram when I came in, and I was embarrassed by old men standing up to shake my hand and tell me they were sorry for my trouble. Whispers informed strangers I was the eldest away at school as my mother held my hand in hers and coughed out angry, tearless sighs. At 10 o'clock, the ambulance arrived with the corpse stanched and bandaged by the nurses. Next morning, I went up into the room. Snowdrops and candles soothed the bedside. I saw him for the first time in six weeks, paler now, wearing a poppy bruise on his left temple. He lay in the four-foot box as in his cot. No gaudy scars. The bumper knocked him clear. A four-foot box. A foot for every year. So yeah, it is a really sad, sad poem. But um, there's so many things I, I guess I got out of it. 
first off, you know, he's, the neighbors take him home. That means he's really young at this point. But in between, when he says he's embarrassed by the old man standing to shake his hand and say, I'm sorry, he has to grow up in that little tiny, you know, time from the time he drives home, they drive him home to when he gets home. So he's, it wasn't he the oldest? He said, yeah, the eldest, that's right, away at school. And then just on the one, two, three, six stanza, I think it is when he says snowdrops and candles to the bedside. I had to look up the snowdrops. And, and what are they? They're flowers. And they're kind of like bowing, you know, like this, they're reverent pose. They're white. Yeah. And I think because he, I don't know, it could be he's personifying the snowdrops too. Mm. It's people around the bedside, you know, giving this reverence to the, the little boy. And then um, it just broke my heart when I got to a four-foot box, a foot for every year. He was so, so young. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. But I guess I love the imagery in it. What you say it. about him, I mean, this is so great. Like, um, I'm trying to think of what the most succinct way to say this is, but not, and not every poem does this. There are a million ways. To, this is so hard to be a writer. I'm, 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 I zoomed out and then I zoomed out again. I'm zooming way out. It's so hard to be a writer. I promise this relates, Berenice. <laughs> it's so hard to be a writer. Writing is so hard. There are no rules, really. I mean, if I could say, if, if I could say here's the recipe for a poem, two cups of sugar, three cups of flour, two cups of sugar. That's a very sweet poem. Two cups of flour, you know, a cup of sugar, chocolate chips, whisk, bake at this, you know, then we could all replicate this and write poems, but it's not like that. It's, there is no recipe. There are no real rules. You will love a poem that does 10 things. And then you'll love a poem that does the opposite of those 10 things. You'll love poems that are, very musical and full of imagery. And you can find poems that you love that aren't really that image full. So it's very hard. I just wanted to get that on the air. This relates because um, not all poems do what I'm, about, what I'm about to say, but I think maybe several of these poems do. They choose, their topics are chosen very wisely. This poem, Midterm Break, and even, yeah, Twice Shy. Digging, maybe not so much. That might be a counterexample, but Write poems in which, in a little box, like the space of one page, you can encapsulate a, the turning point of your life. You know what I mean? Berenice, what you say is totally wise about, like it happens in the in-between lines, like he was a boy, and then suddenly he's being shaken by the hand, and he's not a boy anymore. You know, he's, he's now forced to become a grown-up. And Twice Shy, I think, is another good example of this, where they're little kids, I guess, or teenagers falling in love and maybe this isn't life or death like midterm break is maybe this isn't the defining moment of the life but you know what in that moment it feels like that you've you've been a teenager in love it is the defining moment of your life you know what i mean so choose your topics wisely let's add that to our list choose your topics wisely and try to pack into these little boxes by which i mean poems the moment before which things were one way and after which everything was different. 
if you're choosing your topics like that, then you're already like giving yourself a great head start, I think. This wasn't the poem that I was going to bring this up, but there were multiple poems within this that kept making me think of Nabokov's Seek Memory. Oh, And I think, but I will bring it up in this one because I think the reason he's able to encapsulate this defining moment in just one poem is because of the immense details that he puts in and that he chooses because your memory is going to hold on to certain things when that's a really defining moment, which is also clear in Nabokov's. And so, you know, when he, when he says, and big Jim Evans saying it was a hard blow, you wouldn't normally think to put that in, but because of the state of mind he's in, he's kind of hearing all the whispers in the room and remembering what everybody said and yeah, yeah. everybody did and the snowdrops and by the bedside and things like that. So that's just what makes it so clear and vivid is because that's how clear and vivid it was <clears throat> for him. This is such a great thing to say. Um, he doesn't talk about his sadness. He doesn't talk about his grief, his sorrow, his shock. He doesn't talk about what this will mean for his family. He does mention his mother, this very horrible, and it's a great line, horrible detail, her, his mother coughing out angry, tearless sighs. So we see her grief, but we don't ever hear the speaker of the poem say, oh, she will be, she will never get over this, or how will I be able to comfort her? You know, he doesn't say that in the poem. It's just as you say, Blair, image, 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 the whole way down. It's images all the way down. And the, the images are so clear, we might be a little bit confused about what has happened in the first few stanzas. Like, wait, he's home from school, why? What is this hard blow, what's going on? Pretty soon we get it. But even if the context might be a little bit fuzzy, the specific images that were being shown, right? The college sick bay, the bells that we hear, the neighbors driving him home, big Jim Evans, how great is that? You know, we see, it's not just a guy, it's not just, and then my neighbor shook me by the hand, no, no, no. It was this particular guy, big Jim Evans, right? So it's just image, image, image all the way down. And and there's no commentary. A four-foot box, a foot for every year, end of poem. Heaney knows that the images contain all the emotions he will ever need. And that if he was suddenly then to turn around and say, this was the saddest day of my life or something, no, that's like a horrible ending. You know, the images are better by far. Also, what I like about it is, like you were saying, at first we're confused. Mm. And now it gets clearer at the end, by the end. But I feel like it's the way our brains process things, too. That's probably the way he was feeling as well. Even though okay. he knew probably that his little brother died, he was still trying to process this. And then just by the end, you know, we all get a clear picture of it. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. So you're in a moment of shock and... You, I mean, not to get too personal, but my mom died when I was 18. And I I remember it was kind of, it's very much like this. I remember exactly where I was sitting, the chair. I remember the fabric of the chair. So the phone rings. She, she was in the hospital sick for a long time. She had cancer. I remember the phone ringing. I remember my dad answering it. I remember the tone of his voice. And instantly I knew. I remember the fabric of the chair. I remember what was on the TV. I remember everything. I remember that it was dark outside. I remember it was cold. Like every, like all of these details, list by list. So if I was ever to write a poem about that, 
I would try to mimic Heaney's approach and just give the reader that scene as I lived it. Just the details, you know, just the details. Um, we have about 14 minutes and I want to talk about <laughs> Death of a Naturalist. We don't need 14 minutes to talk about Death of a Naturalist. So if there's one more poem you guys want to squeak in here. Um, well, I have one just because it's short and it's yeah, one that I great. really liked, but it was scaffolding okay, on great. page 13. And Do you want to read it? I just, yeah, sure. Read it. <laughs> People are sick of me. Yeah, read it. <laughs> okay. Scaffolding. Masons, when they start upon a building, are careful to test out the scaffolding. Make sure that planks won't slip at busy points, secure all ladders, tighten bolted joints. And yet all this comes down when the job's done, showing off walls of sure and solid stone. So if, my dear, there sometimes seem to be old bridges breaking between you and me, never fear. We may let the scaffolds fall, confident that we have built our wall. Yeah, and what did you like about this? It was surprising. I didn't know what it was going to turn into. Mm. You know, what he's just... He, he extends the metaphor as long as he can until the very end. And then, and this is another aspect that reminded me of Speak Memory because there are certain poems where he refers to you, like you, my dear. And like Nabokov does that as well when he starts to speak to his wife at the That's end. Right. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's such a beautiful metaphor and such, so applicable, such a lesson I just really appreciated and I liked I didn't anytime you know you try to use a metaphor you're like oh but you know I'm writing poetry this is so cliche he extends it as long as he can he's just describing it describing almost the anatomy of building a structure and then he gives you the comparison I love that it's in a way it kind of ticks every box that we've touched so far it gives us images masons when they start upon a building so we see, we see planks, we see joints, we see ladders, we see all these images, we see stone. Great sounds, because this is quite a rhyming poem. So it sounds like a little kind of song, I guess. Um, it is avoiding, I think, it is defying our expectations because we think, oh, this is gonna be a poem about buildings or architecture or, I don't know, steadiness of character. I don't know what this is gonna be about. And suddenly it swerves into it being a love poem. It touches on, it does something that Berenice praised twice shy for doing which is being honest like it's an honest kind of love poem it's a love poem that says yeah it's gonna seem like it's gonna get rocky you know the, the bridges are gonna seem to crumble a little bit so it doesn't pretend that love or marriage is uninterrupted bliss um so it's honest uh what else we talked about yeah defies expectations is honest and is mostly images anything Thank else to say I think Blair mentioned um, the element of surprise. She didn't yeah. know what to expect. So I think to get out of the cliche, you surprise your reader. Yeah, totally. So, and the only, I mean, there, how do you surprise? How can you learn how to surprise? An annoying answer from the guy who is making you read all these books is to read more books because <laughs> we might not know what a cliche is until we do a lot of reading. The more books we read, the more we'll learn, oh, that's used again and again and again. So unless we find that out, we'll accidentally be using cliches, you know? Or do this exercise, you know, like this is a love poem or this is a poem about 
fear or courage or something, jot down a list of cliches, tape it to your writing desk with a big red X through it. Forbidden list. None of that is allowed in to my poem. I would do that, yeah? Okay, I'm going to read Death of a Naturalist. This is such a good poem. I love it so much. Such a great title too, right? And then we'll just talk about what makes it great. Death of a Naturalist. All year the flax dam festered in the heart of the townland. Green and heavy-headed flax had rotted there, weighted down by huge sods. Daily it sweltered in the punishing sun. Bubbles gargled delicately. Blue bottles wove a strong gauze of sound around the smell. There were dragonflies, spotted butterflies, but best of all was the warm, thick slobber of frog spawn that grew like clotted water in the shade of the banks. Here, every spring, I would fill jam potfuls of the jellied specks to range on windowsills at home, on shelves at school, and wait and watch until the fattening dots burst into nimble swimming tadpoles. Miss Walls would tell us how the daddy frog was called a bullfrog and how he croaked and how the mammy frog laid hundreds of little eggs and this was frog spawn. You could tell the weather by frogs too for they were yellow in the sun and brown in rain. Then one hot day when fields were rank with cow dung in the grass, the angry frogs invaded the flax dam. I ducked through hedges to a coarse croaking that I had not heard before. The air was thick with a bass chorus. Right down the dam, gross-bellied frogs were cocked on sods, their loose necks pulsed like sails. Some hopped, the slap and plop were obscene threats. Some sat poised like mud grenades, their blunt heads farting. I sickened, turned, and ran. The great slime kings were gathered there for vengeance, and I knew that if I dipped my hand, the spawn would clutch it. It's just delightful from beginning to end, right? I mean, I don't, I don't, we don't need to explain why this is a great poem, do we? Let's do it anyway. Why is this a great poem? It's just all the imagery too. It's, it takes you back to when you were a kid and you were awed by frogs. I mean, yeah. and I love the last stanza. It's just... It's wonderful. I don't think there's anything else I can say about that one. <laughs> no, I mean, we don't need, it's just like, wow, we, we should, my ideal poetry class is a class where we just like sit in a circle and read poems and then snap our fingers or something or like nods our head, nod our heads and then keep reading. Maybe this is because we just read Mountains of Madness and like listening to the podcast. I was like, this is when you see the title, you go, what's going to happen? Okay. And so the whole time you're waiting you're waiting for the death of his okay. childish awe and wonder at these frogs. And then it comes and you just, you're, you're just laughing because you understand. It's very funny. I can't tell, I can't teach anyone how to be funny because, you know, I'm not very good at it myself. But there is, there is a wonderful kind of comedic irony in that title. It's so official, the title, Death of a Naturalist. You think, oh, gee, what's this poem going to be about? It's about this little kid who... Learns that nature is horrible and scary. <laughs> it's so funny. And Berenice, I love what you say, but it puts us like into the mind of that child. I think one way it does this is, you know, we hear a child speaking in that first stanza. Miss Walls would tell us how the daddy frog was called a bullfrog and how he croaked and how the mammy frog laid hundreds of little eggs and this was frogs one. 
it sounds like a kid talking. Like, what did you learn at school today? Oh, Miss Wallace told us that daddy frogs were called bullfrogs, right? So he almost inhabits the voice of a child. That's one lesson that we can learn. The poem is wonderfully divided into these two sections. The, the first section sounds all happy and bright and cheerful. And then the next section, how would we describe the sounds in the next section, that second part? I mean, the word choice is just so great. Like the slap and plop where obscene threats poised like mud grenades, the great slime king. Like I'm laughing while I'm reading it. It's just... Great. So we can hear the slap and plop because he uses words like slap and plop. Exceptionally surprising metaphors, mud grenades. That's exactly what they are. Great slime kings. Yeah, they're, I love their blunt heads farting. Yeah. <laughs> and we think that we think we can't say farting in a poem, you know, poetry is supposed to be about like lofty, beautiful things. No, there's no thing that's so small or insignificant or crude, you know, like just write it, write, write about it. But those words too, it just brings you from the kid in awe, like, this is so beautiful. And then, you know, farting, that's not nice. <laughs> yeah. you know? The grenades going off, yeah, like, yeah. they're ready to jump at you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, it's the opposite of the first. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> How do you know, here's a good question. How do you know when to stop? How do you know when a poem is done? So I, I think it specifically relates to this poem because... He gives us this first part, which is about school and, oh, we collect the frog spawn and how beautiful is this? And then the frogs all hatch and they grow and they invade. And it's like this horror movie, yeah? And this is the end of the poem. And I guess my question is, and it's not like I don't have an answer. I'm not asking you to read my mind. I'm asking you what you think. Why is this the end of the poem? Why doesn't the poem go on and explain more? He just simply ends... Yep, they were slapping and plopping. I sickened, turned, and ran. The great slime kings were gathered there for vengeance. And I knew that if I dipped my hand, the spawn would clutch it. End of poem. How does he know when to stop? I don't know that this answers your question, but I just keep going back to how we talk about each of these poems that are kind of a defining moment. And even though this is a very silly moment and you're, you don't really think it's a defining moment, there is a sense of maturity that comes. He goes, the child I was just a moment ago would have reached my hand in there foolishly. Okay. But now I know that if I reach my hand in there, the vengeance slime kings are going to take it. <laughs> and so it's like, that's why it's also like death of a naturalist. Like, oh, he kind of loses that childish wonder and curiosity for everything. He goes, no way I'm putting my hand in there. I love this. So this is great. So there's a, he, everything that we need to know about this coming of age story, we, we're, we've already been given. It's in the title. We're given it, given it in the title. And I love what you say about the tenses. If I were to dip my hand in there, this is my, what might happen. So embedded in those kind of grammatical tenses is this reluctance. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so he knows that he's given us enough and he can, he can just stop the poem. And then as readers, we can also justify that we wouldn't do that either. You know, that we don't do right. that anymore. <laughs> That's okay, we understand you. That's exactly right. We, 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 he's, he's given us a sufficient journey. We started in innocence. We saw the slime kings invade. So we have, we have lived this with him. And we're right there. Like, no, I'm not putting my hand in there. You know, we're, we, we can live it with him because he's flooded us with all these great sensory details. 
This has been so great. I wonder what's been left unsaid. Any last comments? <clears throat> Trust images more than abstractions. Try to make the sounds of your poems mimic the content. Defy reader expectations, be surprising. Write poems that are about kind of pivotal moments in your life, whether or not they actually are, they have to seem pivotal to the speaker. Avoid cliche, what else have we talked about? Be honest, be brave. Be honest, Surprise. be honest and brave. That's a very important thing, very good. Be honest and brave, excellent. Okay, I think this is a great start. I'm glad that you liked the poems. Thank you for a great chat. Thank you. Have a good day. So as you've seen and heard, Seamus Heaney's poetry is very grounded to the things of this earth, and I mean that literally and metaphorically. His book of selected poems is called Opened Ground, and some of his most frequent topics are the earth, the soil, farming, digging, the bog, the peat, things that come out of the bog. This makes it for some great poetry in and of itself, but I think it's also just a good reminder for all of us to keep our poems tied down to the body and to the ground and to the earth, and not to let ourselves as we write float off into abstractions or ideas or emotions. So for this writing prompt, I want you to write specifically about soil, literally. Write about dirt, write about mud, write about muck, write about an open pit or a mine or a hole that you dug on the beach or a grave or a gopher hole or a sinkhole or write about digging in the garden to plant tomatoes. Write about some kind of dirt. Remember Lorca's quote about the five bodily senses. Try not only to get all five senses into the poem, but try also to appeal to at least two of the five senses per line. Really cram as much sensory detail into, into your draft as possible. Most importantly, don't try to be wise or meaningful or profound. Don't write about an emotion. Don't write about how this dirt makes you feel or what it's a symbol of. Don't have that hole in the ground be a metaphor for something else. Just describe it. Just evoke it sensorily. And for an example of this by another poet who is not Seamus Heaney, but who I think very much influenced Heaney, I want to read a poem by Theodore Rutke called Root Cellar. Nothing would sleep in that cellar, dank as a ditch. Bulbs broke out of boxes hunting for chinks in the dark. Shoots dangled and drooped, lolling obscenely from mildewed crates, hung down low yellow evil necks like tropical snakes. And what a congress of stinks. Roots ripe as old bait, pulpy stems, rank, silo-rich, leaf mold, manure, lime, piled against slippery planks. Nothing would give up life. Even the dirt kept breathing a small breath. That's it for today. Another recording about the poems of Seamus Heaney will be coming out soon. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, keep insisting that your poetry be grounded in the things of this world, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm -hmm.